The Dickheads are presented in color. Hey guys, I want to thank you all so much for coming to the celebration of the 40th anniversary of Blade Runner, based on Philip Kiddick's astounding classic, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Uh, today we have a special guest, the Dickheads podcast, the Philip Kiddick podcast, and we've got over here David, we have Anthony, we have Larry, and our guest Mark. Um, it's a real pleasure and privilege to have them in our store, they've been just a champion of exploring the works of Philip K. Dick and bringing it to you guys with lots of guests. Um, we're here at Mysterious Galaxy, which is an indie bookstore here in San Diego that specializes in science fiction, fantasy, and horror. And so we're just going to give them a big welcome and turn it over to them. Thank you. Hey, dickheads, like a pink laser beam of truth, beaming from mysterious galaxies to your brain hole. This is our 40th anniversary of Blade Runner special coverage. Uh, we're going to basically just talk about the novel and the movie and its impact, uh, especially talk about that uh, summer. So we're excited to have Mark Conlon back. Uh, Mark? You haven't been on the show in a little bit, but we're glad to have you. Um, how you been? Uh, <laughs> well, aside from a health crisis I uh, had a while back, I've been fine. Yes, and we are super stoked to have you back um, on the show uh, and here with us. Um, why don't you introduce the folks uh, to the folks who you are again, just in case uh, they're a new listener um, and your background in science fiction. Uh, my name is Mark Gabrish Conlon, and for 18 years I published a community news magazine called Zengers, and uh, that's how I met David. Uh, he was involved in some protests as I was I was writing about, and uh, I've been a fan of science fiction since the early 70s, and um, took a class in it, and. Um, came close to meeting Philip K. Dick. Unfortunately, uh, the teacher of the science fiction class at College of Marin uh, had scheduled him for a lecture, but he backed out at the last minute. Now, Mark, you've been on the show six times. This is the first time you've actually talked about Philip K. Dick. Isn't that funny? Okay. Yeah. you talked about Norman Spinrad <laughs> twice. you talked about Heinlein twice. But this is the first time you got to talk about Philip K. Dick. When did you first read Philip K. Dick? Um... Actually, uh, I first read the novel Galactic Pot Healer uh, back when I was taking that science fiction class in junior college. One of our favorites. And, and one of the uh, Anthony's Great book. <laughs> yeah. Great book. Oh, uh, not Larry's, but it's <laughs> a favorite of many of us. That's fine. You all uh -huh. like Man in the High Castle. Yeah. Whoa. Whoa! Yeah. Shots fired. <laughs> I, especially, <laughs> I especially liked, lo loved the character of Kevorkian Gary Carnes, the DJ. Uh, in Galactic Populous? Yes. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, there's always fun and interesting jobs for Philip K. Dick characters. <laughs> so um, we're really excited to be here in Mysterious Galaxies. It's one of, one of my favorite stores. I bought uh, a couple of the copies of the books that I have highlighted like crazy to uh, cover on this show, including 
this copy of Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, which is like super highlighted and crazy nuts. Um, but anyways, let's talk about the importance of this anniversary, starting with Larry. What has Blade Runner meant to you as a movie? Wow, I, I wasn't expecting to uh, get Start that off. kind of in-depth question. <laughs> uh, what has it meant to me as a movie? Is uh... <laughs> Do you need Anthony to go? No, I think it, what, it, what it meant to me as a movie is more about how it came out in different versions than anything that's in the movie or in the book or anything. It's that it took them so long to just figure out how to make it a really good movie, mm -hmm. you know, by getting rid of certain aspects and bringing back aspects. And, you know, that, that to me is what's, uh, what showed that the movies, no matter what state they come out as in the theater, they can always become something great. Because mm -hmm. Blade Runner was fun when I was a kid, but it wasn't great until they took out all that damn <laughs> the narration. narration. <laughs> <laughs> There's a few people that are fans of the narration. I can't. I know. I know. Yeah, yeah. It's, uh, it's one of those things. But yeah, for the people who saw it 40 years ago today, they got the narration. Mm -hmm. So, um, and it's important to note that um, Philip K. Dick only saw 20 minutes of the movie before he died that uh, he actually died that um, spring before the movie came out, but he was able to meet Ridley Scott and see 20 minutes of the film. He was very happy with it. Um, of course, I don't know. I mean, there's there a lot missing, but we'll talk about that more later. Anthony, uh, Blade Runner, for you. Um, well, first of all, I just want to say I was duped. I thought we were talking about Screamers. <laughs> oh, yeah. We are not. Yeah. Um, no, uh, Blade Your Runner, favorite. I love Screamers. Uh, Blade Runner to me, well, I, I grew up with that movie, and as a kid, it's visually astounding. Um, but I think what I've taken from Blade Runner over the years and is that it really taught me how to have empathy for the villain uh, in the form of Roy Batty mm -hmm. and Pris. And so I think that kind of showcasing that even like who we're supposed to perceive as the bad guys can still have a backstory and can still be complex characters despite being, you know, background humans, you know, replicants. But uh, I would say that's my biggest takeaway from it. Well, and Phil had a tendency to base characters off of real life friends of his and Roy Batty, it should be noted, was based on Ray Nelson who wrote the story that They Live was based on. And is also considered the inventor of the propeller hat, <laughs> so um, which he wore to a science fiction convention in 1947, and so therefore Roy Batty, inventor of the propeller hat. Yeah, yeah. Um, Mark, what do you? What's your feelings on the movie Blade Runner before we talk about the novel? Yeah, well, I'm kind of back of scratch on a little of this because I have not seen the movie until uh, 2019. Oh, wow. And, uh, I hadn't. Uh, Mark. I was just thrown away in my chair. And I'm still, uh, I'm still making my way through the, through the book. So, um, it struck me as the sort of science fiction movie the director Joseph von Sternberg would have made if he had made one. Uh, it's uh, very dark, very smoky, very. Uh, atmospheric, um, it's um, kind of uh, 
Yeah. And the only version I have seen is the middle one, the so-called director's cut, even though it's <laughs> not the, the final one that, cut. Even though it's the one that Ridley Scott had the least to do with editing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but um, well, he didn't even bother reading the novel. So oh well, you know, no, he didn't. He he said it was too complicated. And <laughs> you know, I, there's there's one story that I've heard, and I'd like uh, some of the other uh, people on the podcast to. Let me know if this is true or not. That Philip K. Dick had actually had a contract to write uh, a version, a, a novel of Blade Runner that would go back to androids, but incorporate the changes that the screenwriters had made in the movie. That's almost true. What That's happened close. was, yeah, yeah um, Del Rey was offered him a huge payday <laughs> to do a novelization of the script, and he chose less money. But to keep his original novel because, and he did made that decision because, because it was so different, but also because strategically he thought it was better for his career long term. Of course, he had no idea that he was about to die. Um, but long term, he thought he was better off, you know, just um, repackaging the novel. And I think so. Yeah, made, that's what that's where he did get paid. He got paid to repackage and, and put the. Mm -hmm. The cover that everybody knows. But he left a lot of money on the table not to novelize. Yeah. Yeah. And um, and uh, I, I, on <laughs> our... I didn't want to be Alan Dean Foster. Yeah. On our episode about Dwayne Droid's Dream of Electric Sheep, we have the exact numbers of the money. I don't remember off the top of my head. But um, but it was a lot. It was a significant portion of money. But he felt like he was going to he was gonna get it in other ways, you know. Also, he, like, truth be told, he didn't think he could write it. He was in such a different headspace writing his Vallis books. He did not believe that he could get into writing the science fiction novel that they wanted. So it was par partially the reason he didn't do it is because he didn't think he could. Um, he just didn't think he was in that space anymore. So he said, "Get Alan Dean Foster to do it." Yeah. <laughs> um, but he didn't want that. He wanted the original novel to come out. And that's how we got the edition, the Del Rey edition, that has the poster for the movie. And then it says in parentheses, do Android's dream of electric sheep. In parentheses. And, uh, it does. I know. <laughs> yeah. And the cover blurb says, now a spellbinding motion picture. Yep. Yeah. As if the publishers were so confused by the whole story that that was the only positive adjective they could come up with. <laughs> spellbinding, yeah. Well, I, you know, I read the uh, the Stand a long time ago in the '80s, and my copy of the Stand, which came out in I think uh, late '70s, <laughs> early '80s, yeah. On the back cover, it said "soon to be a major motion picture." Yeah, and that was George Romero had like yeah it was supposedly going to come out with the movie. Yeah, George Romero, <laughs> George Romero was supposed to make a movie of the Stand, and it never happened. Um, and there was like four or five false starts on it, and yeah, that happened from time to time. In fact. In, in the day then so let's let's talk about the novel and um and our relationship to it because it's a very di it's everyone knows that blade runner is not a very faithful adaptation there there were there were two screenwriters that worked on the movie and hampton fancher who was the first screenwriter his first Great name by the way yeah could his, be a character in a film his 1980s script for blade runner is much closer to the novel and all the scenes that are straight out of the novel, like the scene with Rachel Rosen, are all word for word in the first script. And when David Peoples, who was 
he was hired to write the final draft based on his script that would eventually become the Clint Eastwood movie, The Unforgiven, was floating around Hollywood in 1980, and everyone thought it was the best unproduced script at the time. But it was a big get to get David Peoples, who would eventually go on to write 12 Monkeys as well. Um, and when he was hired, he said to Ridley Scott, I have to read the novel. And Ridley Scott told him, no, don't read the novel. I don't want you reading the novel. It's too complicated. I don't like it. So David. How does he know if he didn't read it himself? Exactly. And so David Peoples was literally told by Ridley Scott not to read the novel, which is very frustrating as fans of the novel. Um, and me personally. That's how you end up with Alien Covenant. Well, one yeah. person at this table is not a big fan of the novel. <laughs> yeah. That person's me. Right. Well, I, I will say this month was the fourth time I read this novel. And um, and I will say that every time I read this novel, I like it more. And this is this is the most, because I went through it looking for trivia every day for, for this reread. Um, I have more and more respect for this novel every time that I read it. And, um, and, and I, this, and we can talk about this later, but I'm more interested in what you guys are thinking about it. But a lot of the differences between the novel and the movie and what makes it is the philosophical angles to do Android's dream of electric sheep are immense. And all of that is ejected in the movie. The movie is just, um, the movie is just, you know, uh, uh, an adventure, an action story about hunting down replicants. And it's, there are faithful moments like the Voigtkampf test and things like that are in it. So, so it would be unfair to say it is not based on the novel, but so much of what makes this novel so cool is not at all in the movie. <laughs> you know, the movie is like, it's its own thing. And I love the movie. I love Blade Runner, but they are so different um, in so many ways. Um, and Larry, this was your first Philip K. Dick novel that you read too. It was mine too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I read it because of Blade Runner. And, yeah, so I mean, yeah. everybody our age basically read it because of Blade Runner. Because <laughs> you would you would hear like I read a lot of Starlog magazine back then. And they would talk about how different the novel was from the finished product. And then that made me curious to, to want to read it. Um, yeah, well, I'm, yeah, for me, it was, you know, I was reading Judy Bloom, and then I got into uh, <laughs> Douglas Adams. <laughs> Douglas Adams led directly to reading Do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep, just because it had that, that movie cover on it. Right. Well, it, and it's I... in the same section. Yeah, and I think one of the reasons why... Probably you don't like this novel as much, Anthony. Larry will tell you it's because there's lack of explosions. There's no explosions. <laughs> there are laser tubes all over it. <laughs> um, there are weapons. I, it, but anyways, but I think part of it is is that you were such a fan of Blade Runner and you loved Blade Runner for for so long that and you read this very late in the pro process of us doing. Yeah, I didn't read podcast. it until we started the podcast. Yeah, exactly. And so I think that by that time you were. You had Blade Runner so much in your head, right? That you you found. I I would assume that's why you found this kind of disappointing. I mean, we talked about it already in our episode, yeah. but yeah. <laughs> we don't need to retread that. I don't need any more hate mail. <laughs> <laughs> well, no, you're you have the right to that opinion. I mean, you know. Let's talk about how much I don't like cosmic puppets. Anyway, yes, <laughs> that, that is of course our the one we all agree on is terrible. Yeah. 
Um, and Mark, you said you're rereading re- this now, or you're? I've never read it. Before. Oh, you never like, read it before. Yeah. So I was like, okay, I better cram for this. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I have the uh, I have the copy I picked up with it, which was also the movie tie-in edition, mm-hmm. and you know, it's kind of interesting to hear the stories of you know why the book and the movie are so different. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though one part of me is saying, you know, thinking, well, this was, uh, as I understand, the first Philip K. Dick story ever to be filmed. Yes, it was the first. And uh, outside of there was some TV adaptation of of um, a story, right? It was Imposter, the one that yeah. eventually was made into a movie with um, uh, the guy from Forrest Gump. I'm brain farting his name, but um, the. Uh, but there was an attempt in the 60s to make Imposter, but it's like lost to time. You can't find it anywhere. It's impossible. Mm-hmm. So, and believe me, I have tried. <laughs> so, um, and um, so really it is the first. Yeah. So, you know, and it did occur to me that I can see why this was the first because uh, it's the it's a, one his one of his simplest novels, one of his least digressive, uh, one of his least, you know, into the paranoid worldview he was famous for. Yeah. Oh man, see, I disagree. I think if, maybe it's because I've read it four times, but <laughs> but when when you really get into this novel, there are deep, 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 deep levels. I think. But, yeah, but not the it, but it's not that paranoia aspect. It's more about religion in this one. And the, mm. Well, it's different about, aspects of religious. It's about belief. empathy and, and yeah, philosophical, yeah, beliefs. Because for the, for anyone who only knows the, the movie, they know that a lot of the story rests on the idea of that Deckard is a bounty hunter and he's hunting uh, replicants. In the novel, they're called Andes, and um, but so much of the book is based on the commerce of. Um, in this world, in the novel, more it's in the movie, the, the fake animals, the owls, those things, but it's very subtle. In the book, it's all over the place. It's keeping up with the Joneses. Mm-hmm. You know, like, you know, if you're really cool, you've got a horse or a sheep or a cow. And so much to the point that people have buy fake electronic animals to, to look like, you know. And there's a whole... There's scenes with electronic cats. And what's really funny to me that I didn't notice in earlier readings of the book is all, all the animals have hilarious names. Um, scruffy, Buffy, Scrappy, like throughout the book. And it's, you know, because Dick is underrated for his humor as well. You know, um, that is one of the things that's going on there. But, um, but yeah, so we're going to do a little bit of trivia as a way to talk about about the novel and um we do have books for prizes um this this was all these trivia questions were on our facebook this month so and twitter and twitter and so you could have had access to them but these are larry's going to ask them <laughs> you did have access to them i know they're going to be very as we don't have to them. <laughs> but uh but and we'll see because um if if Nobody can answer them. I, I'll do my best. And then I'll huck a book at you. 
All right, what, uh, let's you see, where do we want to start? Uh, let's start here. Well, not here per se, but well, well close enough. What is here anyway, Larry? Yeah, exactly. Everywhere. What is reality? Back to philosophy. Uh, what author who has done multiple book signings at Mysterious Galaxy was the book dedicated to? I left out the not this location. <laughs> yeah. He did uh, this. This uh, this book was dedicated to an author who has done multiple signings at M Mysterious Galaxies. Hmm. Really, Rob? <laughs> you introduced <laughs> this author, probably. Oh uh, yeah, he did. Is, yeah, he did. Because you wife, could win one of these books if you just. Anthony and I smoke cigarettes with his wife. So. Yeah. <laughs> That's a thing that happens. He knows nothing about technology. No. Ray Bradbury. Oh, that's nope. a close one. That's a good guess. A good Sorry, guess. California writer. They, this oh. guy graduated from this university that I'm wearing the shirt for. Uh, William Bill. No, no, no. Not Bill. Uh, it's not Bill Nolan. Another LA writer. So that was a decent guess. You don't know? Nobody knows? I was dedicated to Tim Powers and his Ooh. wife. Now, here's what makes this really funny and interesting is Tim Powers was 16 years old when the book came out. So when I saw that, I was like, wait, that doesn't make any sense. The original edition was not dedicated to Tim Powers. It was only subsequent paperback editions. Oh. Phil changed it because he had dedicated the first edition to, he had a, a there was a bishop, James Pike, who was very famous. And his mistress committed suicide, and he dedicated the book to, to her. And then I apparently decided that was weird. And uh, standards, yeah, and changed it to Tim Powers. And Tim Powers, uh, who he met when he was a, a student at Cal State Fullerton, where um, Philip K. Deck was a regular um lecturing in uh, Professor McNeely's science fiction classes. And that's how you met Tim Powers. Oh, give yourself a book, David. You've got it right. <laughs> <laughs> Who wants a book? <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah. Well, here's a general knowledge PKD question. I'll look the other uh, PKD was married five times. This novel was written between which marriages? And it's the numbers, not the person. Although, if you know the name of the people, that would be That would be pretty impressive. impressive. It was between marriages what and what? Two and three. Close. Close. Three and four. <laughs> three and four! Take a look, Charles. Yes, this, um, this happened between the marriages to Anne and Nancy. And he was in the glow of just meeting Nancy when he wrote this book. Um, the glow. The glow of the new relationship with Nancy. Yep. Who... Uh, he had uh, his daughter Isa with, who um, is now producing movies based on his work. Weren't they all sort of based on sisters? Well, sort of. There is yeah. that character as well. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of characters based on his uh, twin sister who died, uh, um, brief, like very briefly after they after he was born. And um, Anthony has visited her grave. I have. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Is that here in San Diego? No, no it's, it's in Colorado. 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 Okay, Larry, give us another one. All right. Um, what year 
was Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep written? And also, what year was it released? Either one of those questions. Mm. Would be 1978? Nope. Released in 68? It, it was, was released, released in 68. And it was written in? 65. Close. Close. You still can oh. take a book if you want one, Rob. <laughs> <laughs> like, you don't, Rob. you don't see books every day. <laughs> <laughs> Do you have enough books? Um, Do you want to win a work <laughs> item, Rob? Yeah. <laughs> So, uh, yes, uh, Philip K. Dick wrote um, Do Androids Dream of Electric Street in spring of 1966, and it was delivered to the SMLA Literary Agency on June 20th, 1966. That's when they opened the envelope and uh, said, okay, we got to sell this thing. So it took two years from that point. So, yeah, 66 to 68. That's a good question. In his own lifetime, was Dream is not successful? Uh, not in his lifetime, no. In his lifetime, his most successful book was the Dosi Do version of the Solar Lottery and the Big Jump by Lee Brackett. Oh, that really? Was, yeah. Oh, his first, his very first published book was the most copies of anything that sold in his lifetime, oh. and that is partially because Lee Brackett was. Very popular in the fifties, <laughs> so it had very little to do with it's solar lottery. Yeah, although I think solar lottery is criminally underrated. And so is the Big Jump by Lee Brackett that it was Dusty Doe with. It's a great book, which we did an episode about and earlier Lee, this year. Lee Brackett was a screenwriter on at Empire. least two Humphrey Bogart movies. To have mm -hmm. that out, not in the Big Sleep. That's right. Yeah, Lee Brackett's last job before she died was writing the first draft of Empire Strikes Back. So, yeah, she was great. Great writer. Larry, give us another trivia. All right. Well, I'm sort of going to rephrase one of your questions here. Okay. Uh, in the book, there's another uh, another Blade Runner uh, bounty hunter called Phil Resch. What pet did Phil Resch have at his house? What type of animal? So he was convinced he was not an android, even though everyone told him he was, because he had this pet. Although he did work at the uh, the central robot house. Yeah, he worked at the robot, the robot police station. There's an entire police station that had been taken over by androids, and he worked there, and he was the one human that worked there. No, no. Huh? Close, but no. The now? Uh-uh. Hamster? I can't remember either. A what? Hamster. That's a good no. guess. Komodo dragon. <laughs> I wish. Yeah, right. Nope, no. it was? It was Buffy the squirrel. Buffy oh. the squirrel. <laughs> yeah, he had a squirrel. <laughs> Buffy the squirrel. <laughs> and he was so proud that Buffy was as shiny as an otter. Shiny as an otter, whatever Shiny that means. as an otter in one scene, he was described as. Because he's like, I can't be an android. I take such good care of my squirrels. She's shiny like an otter. It's great. Very funny part. <laughs> so, again, in the novel, how much does a bounty hunter earn for retiring an Andy? How much money? Cash in hand. I, I know. <laughs> 
A thousand dollars. It is a thousand dollars. It's a thousand dollars. Take another book, girl. Wow. And it's a thousand dollars. I think you'll like that one. Uh, you can switch if you want. But um, uh, yes, it's a thousand dollars, and he's the whole motivation throughout the book is he has to get five Andes so he can afford to buy a goat. A, a goat. Yeah. Yeah, because he wants a goat on his roof to show how much how empathetic he is. Yeah. But instead, he ends up with the toad. Well, he does buy the goat, but somebody steals the goat. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, though his wife kills the goat, right? Or something? No, no, no. It's uh, Rachel kills the goat. Oh, it's Rachel that kills. Okay. Yeah. I knew someone killed the goat. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, and all huge. Yeah. And then in the end, he gets the toad, which relates <laughs> to one of the horrible almost titles for this book. Yeah. And that's the best question. What are any of the alternate titles? To do Android's Dream of Electric Sheep. Yeah, Phil, Phil, K. Dick, Phil K. Dick had several different. So anybody titles. who listens to our show knows that Phil K. Dick always has terrible titles first. He was and, not good at naming his books. And his editors always had to step in and change his titles. And uh, what's your uh, least favorite, Anthony? Earth's diurnal core. Or, no, Earth diurnal course, which he tried to use twice. Diurnal course. He tried <laughs> yeah, to yeah, use yeah. You nailed it. Yeah, thank you, Anthony. <laughs> um, he tried to name Dr. Blood Money and Ganymede Takeover with that same title. God, that sucks. <laughs> and, and failed both times. Um, but yeah, so he had three titles before this. Any guesses? It does. <laughs> In fact, do androids lick toads? <laughs> <laughs> no, it is not do androids lick toads. Um, go ahead, you, you do the title. Yeah, he, I don't know if they're written down here, are they? Um, yeah, they are written down there. The Electric Toad was one, um, but the worst one was. You're gonna have to read the worst one, Larry, because it's I, it's very long. Oh, there it is. Okay, I see. This get ready. It's so terrible. The Electric Toad. Do androids dream? Mm -hmm. uh, is that that's still one title, right? It's still one title. Okay. Yeah. Do androids dream? Uh, slash the electric sheep. <laughs> and the best one of all, the killers are among us. Cried Rick Deckard to the special man. Wow. Yeah. All right. One more trivia, and then one we'll... thing I hadn't realized. Until I started reading Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep, is that there actually is an electric sheep in the book. It's not just a metaphor. A, yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It's yeah. not the catcher in the rye. <laughs> right. There is, there is truly an electric sheep. It is quite the yeah. Well, the question I would like, this isn't more about the movie, obviously. Uh, name three other movies that came out in 1982. That just in any movie or any movie that came out in 1982 came out the same day, same day today. forty years ago today. Yep. Take all the books, Rob. <laughs> Anything that's really good, and memorable, came out in 1982. Yeah, question. So my list of the summer of '82 movies are Tron, E.T., The Wrath of Khan, Conan the Barbarian, Fast Times, Rocky Three. 
you know, awesome. <laughs> Blade Runner, and most importantly, The Road Warrior. Wow. Oh. <laughs> 82 was banging. Yeah, right? Yeah. <laughs> and I have, it was a great year. I have, I was, I have irritated some of my fellow film buffs by saying that John Carpenter's The Thing is better than the 1951 original. It's what? absolutely it's better. It absolutely better. is better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I'm eventually wanting to do a podcast about the story. Who goes there? So I might yes. have to come back. Which I do. I do like the story. Yeah, yes. the story's great. And and it's a more but, faithful adaptation. The, the Carpenter's The Thing is a more faithful adaptation yeah. of the story. You know, yeah, yeah. He, you know, he kept the shape-shifting capability of uh, Campbell's original, which uh, mm-hmm. Charles Lederer, who wrote the 1951 version, a minute, you know, got rid of. Yeah, he just turned him into like a Dracula guy. <laughs> yeah, which was, which was, which was the bad. limits of the technology, though. <laughs> okay, are there apparent any, in that one? Any other of the trivia questions you want to talk about? Mm, I know if they could turn Lon Chaney Jr. into a werewolf, they could have done the thing shape shifted <laughs> in 1951. I think yeah. so. Yeah, and well, we can do the Voight Comp one. Oh, sure. Ask. Uh, so here's the Voight Comp question: When giving Rachel Rosen the Voight Comp test, Rick Deckard skips to the third question to start. Mm-hmm. So question the Voight Comp test is: You the are test. given a calfskin wallet for your birthday. <laughs> How does she answer that question? So the Voight Comp test is the test that proves whether you're an android or not. So, um, how does she respond to? In the book or the movie? In the movie. It's the same. She yeah. puts her over to the authorities. Yeah. Yep. That's right. And uh, uh, report them to the police. Yeah. So, part of the whole thing of the Voight Cop test is it's all based on our empathy towards animals, mm-hmm. which, of course, as somebody who's been vegan for almost 30 years, I just assume that all of civilization will, will not pass this test. Um, <laughs> you know, and. What it's really, and I'm currently working on an article called Do Androids Dream of Animal Rights, where I talk about the fact that it is implicit in the book that everyone in this world is vegetarian. Because, um, and part of one of the reasons why it is proven in the book is that post-World War Terminus, which is the war in the book, the nuclear war, there are not enough animals, that's why they're revered. So they're definitely not eating animals, mm-hmm. and so it, that's and so when you consider that the whole empathy test is all based on like mm-hmm. how people's empathy towards animals, plus the whole religion of mercerism, mm-hmm. which is in the book, and these are all things that are not in the movie, right? But they're implicit in the novel. It's one of the things that makes the novel, I think, so much superior to the movie. Me personally, <laughs> which I know. Everyone's shaking their heads at me. Like uh, I don't know. If that, I don't know if you can really compare them. Yeah, they're, they're hard to compare. Very I think, separate things. I thing. think the whole question about the Toronto, her, you know, having a level of empathy and the hesitation she has in the film. Mm-hmm. You know, mm-hmm. that it's not just I'm trying to reason about the right answer. I think that's one of the first glimmers in the film that she indeed is capable of empathy. Right. Which in the book she murders the goat. In, at the, the, end. in the book she has no empathy at all. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Yep. Yep. That's makes. Yeah, she's terrible in the book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and but that's Philip K. Dick. You know, it was very really had some issues with women. Well, it's also the the issue that Philip K. Dick wanted to make clear that androids 
do not have, um, you know, ethical, they don't have empathy. And that's like one of the things that makes them androids. And that, that was like one of the things that he wanted to explore with this novel. I think that spider scene really, yeah. I mean, nailed it. I don't know if the goat thing was necessary. Yeah. Yeah. And I know, um, I have heard that um, Philip K. Dick's original inspiration for the novel was the research he did for The Man in the High Castle, that he read the records of the Nazis at Nuremberg being interrogated, and he realized that the, the Nazis had no empathy. Yeah, we talked about we talked about that. I don't know if it was about... Was it about this book, or was it about a different book that he... It was had, about... We talked about it in relation to High Castle, yeah. There was research for it. But yeah, I mean that that's a huge part of it, and you know, there's I'm sure a, that affected a lot of his books. The way he he really sat down in his in his little shack and and studied all those mm, all yeah. those reports. And uh, one of the stories that was really impactful was the story that Himmler was so worried that his soldiers would develop trauma from having to shoot Jews that that's why he created the the gas chambers. Because he was like, he didn't want his soldiers to go through the trauma of shooting people. And this story was, you know, very horrifying and, and impactful for, for Phil for talking about the concept of empathy. And like, here's this, it, it's just insane to think that, you know, he was so worried about the feelings of his soldiers having to, to murder people, you know. And, uh, but, um, you know, the lack of empathy is, is sort of like the the main characteristic of a psychopath. Mm -hmm. So if Himmler was concerned about the impact, you know, the trauma impact on his soldiers, to me that indicates evil. Well to me, evil True. and sociopath are, you know, they're the same thing. But I mean how I, I just yeah, it's hard to, and that's one of the things that's so cool about this novel, in my opinion, is from top to bottom, you know, you can look at this as an adventure story about hunting robots. Um, and yes, it's an allegory for, for hunting in general, like what, what Rick Deckard's going through. But the whole novel is a philosophical exploration of the concept of empathy and what is human, what is not human, and what makes empathy and what, you know, and that's what makes it a deeper novel and I think all those things are there in Blade Runner, but because there's the spectacle and like everything, it's it it's not as obvious as it is when you read the book. And I would also say that for me, as a person who's read it four times, like the deeper you read this novel, and if you sit with a highlighter and pick up parts, there are amazing moments of philosophical study of empathy throughout the book. But that, don't do that. But don't, yeah, you don't have to read the book and have a good time. Yeah, you can do that too. Does anybody have any questions? Because we're we have five minutes left. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're running out of time. Just, I mean, that was a great question, Linda. Uh, but it, if anybody has any questions that they want to ask, Charles, <laughs> any? I actually do. I have a quickie. Um, yeah. So the movie industry has been having quite a field day with his work and unfortunately the guy isn't around to reap the rewards of that so does he have like an estate or family members or somebody that's getting paid off of all this stuff yeah his, two of his daughters 
run a, a production company called Electric Sheep Productions. And they were in, highly involved in the Man in the High Castle series, Adjustment Bureau. They've just recently greenlit um, an adaption of uh, Vulcan's Hammer Ooh. that they're working on with the director of The Hunger Games. Weirdly. But not, not all of his stuff. Yeah. I mean, a lot of the stuff that came out was, uh, I think it just basically went out into the ether, the rights to his stuff. Well, no, some while. of it was sold before he died, and those floated around. And there's a real famous story about the first script that he saw for this book. He threatened to beat the guy up when he read the script because <laughs> it was so bad. And that's the guy who eventually produced Motel Hell. And apparently his version of the script was like a comedy. Hey, filmmaking at its finest, dude. Yeah, I know. I love movies. Yeah. Well, like Minority Report, wasn't that based on one of Philip K. Dick? Yeah. Okay, yeah. so somebody made a bunch of money on that. Yeah, Steven Spielberg. <laughs> <laughs> but he bought the rights. They bought the rights from the family. And, um, but some of the, per like Total Recall was purchased in his lifetime. Like the rights to Total okay. To the short story for Total Recall and um, the rights to, uh, I, I believe Minority Report was actually sold before he died. So, okay. because originally Minority Report was going to be a sequel to Total Recall. Well, when did he die? Uh, 1982. He died the same year that Blade Runner came out. Um, he only saw 20 minutes of it. Did he see it? 20 minutes of it. There was only 20 minutes finished when, when, when Aww. he met uh, Ridley Scott. Yeah. That's yeah. about all the time we have. Yep. Yeah. Um, yeah, but uh, so, yeah, just to wrap things up. Um, uh, yeah, it was quite a summer for movies, and I think Blade Runner and the impact 40 years later, it's really uh, powerful. Um, that I, I love it that it just keeps bringing people back to his work. And there is talk now of a Blade Runner TV series. They're supposedly calling. Oh, actually, they're making that. I yeah, Blade heard. Runner twenty ninety nine is what they're saying. They're shooting ahead fifty years from the mm -hmm. last movie. Um, should be interesting. Um, they should definitely hire us to write on it. David and I had to agree to disagree on Blade Runner twenty forty nine. He loves it. I thought. If the Academy gave an award for the all-time worst sequel to a great movie, oh. it would deserve it. Oh, oh I so wow. disagree. Okay. Yeah. So like you didn't it. see Superman 3. <laughs> <laughs> or 4. <laughs> or the sequel to the sequel. Or Matrix 2. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Or the most recent Matrix. Yeah. yeah. Oh. I haven't seen that one yet. Well, I will say um, yeah, we mentioned uh, Matrix Recycle. We mentioned <laughs> yeah. uh, we mentioned the film They Live earlier, mm -hmm. and you know, I was just telling uh, David that um, I think John Carpenter did more of, about the whole theme of we are you know everything we believe about a reality is illusion. He did more with that in one one hundred and five minute movie than the Wachkowskis did in four 135 to 150-minute <laughs> yeah. movies. And it was yeah. one of Phil K. Dick's best friends who wrote the story <laughs> that it was based on. So tying it in. Okay. <laughs> um, I really liked the third Matrix, the Wachowski's third. Ugh. Oh, yeah, I really did. I got yeah. really into I'm that. actually with Lois on that. I, the I, third I, one was I, entertaining. It was fun. It was exciting. Here's what I have to say. Uh, 
right. It's all right. To wrap things up, um, yeah, it was interesting that you brought up that we did not bring up the sequel. I actually, yeah, Larry and I are definitely fans of the sequel. Anthony yeah. and I saw it in the theater together. I've seen it so, twice in the theater. It's yeah, great. I, we, visually yeah. great. I love eighty percent of that movie. Yeah. Yeah, I, I I love it. It could have definitely lost a few minutes, but um, well, and, and I could have lived without Harrison Ford in it. But yeah, uh, same. yeah, but uh, but at the same time, I I really appreciate yeah, the um, villain of well, you know, this new Dune could have lost oh about an hour. Yeah, <laughs> well, I disagree. About but, an hour, especially since it's just half the first half of uh, yeah half of the, the book. Yeah. All right, put a pin in it. All right, yeah, so uh, thank you, Mysterious Galaxies, for hosting us. Thank um, you, Rob, and everybody. Yeah, uh, Mysterious Galaxies is a great bookstore. You can shop there online, uh, so it's a great bookstore to support. Even if you're not in San Diego, you can order books through them. Um, and Website in the show notes. Yeah, website in the show notes. Uh, definitely support Mysterious Galaxies. Um, Mysterious Galaxy. David. Mysterious Galaxy. Singular. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's only one galaxy. Um, and <laughs> if you stop by the store and shop here, say hi to Rob because he he's one of you. He's a dickhead as well. And um, <laughs> yeah. And uh, uh, thank you, everyone. And as always, keep it paranoid. Stay paranoid. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs>